people get started? Right, so, okay. Um, first of all, good evening to everybody. And a big welcome here to the London School of Economics um, for tonight's lecture. Um, my name is Christine Jenkin. Um, I'm a professorial research fellow in the Centre for Women, Peace and Security here at the London School of Economics. And I'm a former professor of international law here at the London. That was an earlier life. Uh, but I was a former professor of international law. So first thing after welcoming all of you is to extend a very warm welcome indeed to our speaker for this evening, Professor Margaret McMillan. Welcome to the LSE. I guess it's not your first time here. No, but no. always glad to be back. <laughs> but welcome uh, back again. And for this lecture which is on ending war and making peace, which is part of essentially marking the 100th anniversary um, of the um, peace process, or the beginning of the peace processes in 1919. Um, I might also say that Professor McMillan has spent most of today at a seminar um, around the same subject and particularly around different aspects of the um, Versailles Peace Treaty. So we're extremely grateful to you for not only coming here tonight, but for the whole day as well and the participation. And um, before I introduce Professor McMillan, formally, just three very quick housekeeping points. Um, Twitter, the usual requests, please put your phones on silence. And if you want to tweet, the hashtag should be here somewhere. No, I don't think it is. Uh, is it? Yes, there it is. A hashtag LSE making peace. So if you could use that. Um, this evening's event is being recorded and always have to say subject to technical difficulties because we can never guarantee it. Hopefully it should be available as a podcast within the next uh, few days up to sort of about a week's time should then be available. And then um, Professor McMillan will speak for sort of 45 minutes or so and after that um, there will be a time for questions, comments and so on and that Professor McMillan has um, very kindly said she will... Um, respond to. <laughs> so, so um, I suspect that I really do not need to introduce <coughs> Professor McMillan, but um, she is, as I'm sure you all know, a historian and an academic administrator. She was a member of Ryerson's University History Department for 25 years, provost of, provost of Trinity College at the University of Toronto until 2007, Warden of St. Anthony's College and Professor of International History at the University of Oxford until 2017. She's now Emeritus Professor at Oxford and Professor of History at the University of Toronto. And again, as I'm sure that you all know, she specialises in British Imperial History, the International History of the 19th and 20th Centuries, and her publications include The Peacemakers, The Paris Conference of 1919 and Its Attempt to End War, Seize the Hour, When Nixon Met Mao, The War That Ended Peace, How Europe Abandoned Peace for the First World War, and also Histories, Peoples, Personalities, and the Past. She's given the CBC's Massey Lectures, and in 2008, the BBC's Wreath Lectures, as well as being a very frequent commentator on international affairs, has won numerous awards and um, has been awarded honorary degrees from a number of universities in the United Kingdom and in Canada. Um, tonight's lecture, Professor McMillan, is going to be asking why moving from war to peace can be so difficult, 
and examine the particular challenges faced by the peacemakers in 1919. And I've also been asked to just to point out that tonight's event is in fact part of a broader sequence of events that shape the world series, which is being held here at the LSE as a run-up to the LSE Festival, which is a week-long series of events taking place next March, from the 2nd to the 7th of March. Um, the festival will be free to attend. It will be exploring social sciences and how social sciences can be used to make the world a better place, something I think we all need to think about. Um, the full-line programme will be available from January onwards, but that's looking ahead. What we have got tonight is um, the lecture um, that, as I've already said, is called Ending Wars and Making Peace, the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 Re-Examined. So if you could join me in welcoming Professor McMillan and... Thank you very much, and it is a pleasure to be at the LSE. The Paris Peace Conference of 1919, I think, remains interesting because so much of our world still, I think, is shaped by decisions that were taken or not taken there. It has been argued that what happened there was a catastrophe, that it led directly to the Second World War. I'm going to hope to persuade you that that's perhaps a little bit too simple. Perhaps the most powerful view of the Paris Peace Conference was created by a young economist called John Maynard Keynes, who in 1919 was an economic advisor to the British in Paris, the British delegation in Paris. He left in the summer of 1919. He, it was a difficult time in his life. He may have been unhappy, who knows, um, whatever, for whatever reason, he left in a very bleak and black mood, and he wrote in six weeks a book which I think is the envy of anyone who's ever written a book, because it became a bestseller as soon as it was published, and it has never been out of print since. It has a very dull title. It's called The Economic Consequences of the Peace, but it's about much more than economic consequences. It is a polemic and I don't mean that as a criticism, it's a very good polemic, it's a very successful polemic, and it has, I think, particularly in the English-speaking world, shaped our view of what happened in Paris in 1919. It never had as much traction in France, and in fact some of the major attacks on it were written by French writers. Let me just give you a taste of the book, because what he does is not just talk about Europe's economy, and the economic consequences of the peace. What he talks about are the statesmen who were there, he talks about the atmosphere, he talks about, as he sees it, the monumental human folly that was on display. This is just an extract from the book. Paris was a nightmare, and everyone there was morbid. A sense of impending catastrophe overhung the frivolous scene. The futility and smallness of man before the great events confronting him the mingled significance and unreality of the decisions, levity, blindness, insolence, confused cries from without, all the elements of ancient tragedy were there. And he goes on to describe the assembled statesmen as hypocritical, subtle and dangerous spellbinders who engaged in empty and arid intrigue, the Treaty of Versailles, the treaty that was signed on June the 28th, 1919 with Germany, 
was imbecile greed, oppression and rapine, dishonorable, ridiculous, and injurious. And he does very powerful pen portraits of the leading statesmen. Woodrow Wilson, the American president, who unusually came across the Atlantic to take part in the peace conference and was in Paris with one interval for nearly six months, something, of course, inconceivable today. He describes Woodrow Wilson as a figure in a child's game of blind man's bluff. I don't know if you've ever played this, but you put you put a, a, a you tie a scarf around someone's eyes and you spin them around until they don't know whether they're coming or going. And that's what the wily Europeans did to Woodrow Wilson. He described him in one of his cruelest until it was sent to the printers. And it is an extraordinary jumble. It has five different, four or five different sections. The first section is the covenant of the League of Nations, which was an odd thing to put in the treaty in a way because Germany was going to be asked to sign it and not become, would not be allowed to become a member. Yet another thing that the Germans, with some reason, were going to resent. It contained, of course, the famous disarmament clauses. Germany was not meant to have an army of more than 100,000 men. It wasn't allowed to have an air force. It wasn't allowed to have battleships over a certain size. It wasn't allowed to have tanks. All this was in the treaty. <coughs> Punishment, at least, was discussed of those who were said to be guilty for starting the war, although in the end, those clauses remained inactive. And, of course, one of the most controversial of all, the loss of land. Germany was going to lose territory. It was going to lose its colonies, which I think was normal in, 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 in the case of defeat. But it also lost territory in Europe, something the Germans resented and possibly exaggerated. There's a lot of discussion among historians now about whether Germans exaggerated the extent of the population they lost. A lot of the peoples who were lost to Germany by the reemergence of Poland were Polish speakers who had not particularly wanted to be part of Germany ever. But it did lose territory, it did lose colonies, and then of course there's the one that continued to poison international relations right through the 1920s, and that was reparations. Germany was going to have to pay for repairing the damage that it and its allies had done by starting the war. And in Article 231, Germany took responsibility and its allies for starting the First World War. That the Germans nicknamed the War Guilt Clause. It doesn't mention guilt, but I think the Allies intended to imply it, but it was something that the Germans resented deeply and, and were going to make great play with. The second clause, which comes immediately afterwards, Article 232, actually limits Germany's unlimited liability by saying that how much it will pay will depend on its capacity to pay. The first clause was written, actually, by a young American lawyer called John Foster Dulles, who wanted to put in a basis for Germany having to pay reparations. But that's, of course, you know, it's, it, perception is hugely important in, in, in international relations as in life, and the limit was not something that the Germans really took into account. So the treaty was deeply unpopular in Germany. The process of the treaty was deeply unpopular in Germany, and it was very, very reluctantly that the new Weimar government agreed to sign it. And the two men who went to Germany, who went to, to the treaty, who went to the palace in Versailles to sign it, I think never really recovered it. Well, one of them didn't have long to live. He was going to be assassinated by right-wing fanatics shortly afterwards. Um, but both of them said it was one of the worst days of their life. And the treaty was never accepted in Germany. It began to be argued in Germany the military in particular and their allies among conservatives and on the right began to argue that not only had Germany not started the war, but that it had not lost the war. That Germany could have fought on. 
and that it only stopped fighting in the summer of 1918, in the autumn of 1918, because it was stabbed in the back by traitors at home. People who came out on strike, protesting, demonstrating, people from the left, liberals, the left, socialists, and increasingly Jews, were singled out for having stabbed Germany in the back. So if you don't think you had lost the war, and you don't think you started the war, and if you think also, as many in Germany thought, that President Woodrow Wilson in his notes, public notes which had negotiated the armistice at the end of the war, had more or less promised that if Germany got rid of the old regime and became a republic, which Germany did, then it would be treated differently. And so for a number of reasons, peoples across the political spectrum in Germany from right to left came to think that the Treaty of Versailles was illegitimate. And that was something, as I say, was, was certainly fueled by the activity of, of the German military who didn't like to admit that they'd lost a war and so began to find all sorts of reasons uh, to explain it away. It was also fanned by the Foreign Office. There was a special department in the Foreign Office devoted to attacking the Treaty of Versailles. And it selectively released documents which seemed to show that Germany had been promised a different sort of peace, but also that Germany hadn't started the war. And it invited well-meaning historians from places like the United States to come and if there's anything historians like, it's seeing documents that nobody else has seen. And so they were given access to these documents, and they went back and they wrote books saying, you know, Germany was very unfairly treated. It didn't start the war. The war started on its own. Europe slept, warped into the war. And so I think what you have is a peace conference that took place in conditions that were not conducive to peace. You had a Germany that was not prepared to accept the peace that was imposed on it. It was imposed on Germany and which, in which this was a feeling shared right across the political spectrum. And of course, this mattered. We're not dealing here, the Allies weren't dealing here with a small and poor country. They were dealing with a very large and powerful country in the center of Europe. And Germany's infrastructure hadn't been damaged in the way that the French or Austrian or Russian or Belgian infrastructures had been damaged. Germany, in some ways, was strategically more powerful after 1919 than it had been before. Before 1914, Germany shared a common border with Russia because there was no Poland between them. And what gave the German high command nightmares was the Russian steamroller. The huge numbers, there were far more Russians than there were Germans, the huge numbers of potential Russian soldiers who would be brought on the railways that Russia was very busy building before 1914 up to the borders with Germany. And after 1919, there was now Poland between the two of them. And so Germany, in some ways, you could argue, was strategically better off after 1919. Not that the Germans felt it, but in retrospect, I think they were. And in place of an Austria-Hungary, which Germany had always had very difficult relations with, there were now a number of weak and quarreling Central European nations, which Germany was able to play off one against the other. And so you have to have managed pretty well up to this point. And that was something that was dangerous in Europe before 1914. When the crisis of 1914 came, people said, well, we've had these before. We've just had a crisis in the Balkans. You know, we'll muddle through it. And I think perhaps at the moment we're not in such a perilous situation, but we're in danger of the same sort of complacency. A number of our institutions, I think, which have served us well since 1945, are now under threat. And I think there is, it, it goes back and forth, but I think we do see the rise of an intolerance in some of our politics, which is not good on the whole for constitutional government. And I think before we condemn the Paris Peace Conference totally, we should ask, 
Could we do it any better? Um, I always think that's something we need to ask in history. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for that amazing tapestry, I think, of so many strands coming together and interweaving and the complexities and the layers um, that you have talked about and then looking at it in today's contemporary situation. Um, Margaret has agreed to take questions. Uh, we have, as usual, uh, microphones um, to people. So can you please, well, one here, one here. Can you please wait until a microphone comes to you? Can you please keep it short to allow as many people as possible to ask questions? Just say who you are um, at the beginning, and we'll take them in sort of groups of three or four um, to start with. So, right, since you're standing right by the microphone, and then we'll come here, and then we'll come here, one to cross the floor. I just want to ask... Um, Sorry, who are you, please? I just want to ask what, what role... <laughs> who, who are you? Your name. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> my name's Seb. Um, I'm, I'm not a student at, 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 at LSE. So I just want to ask what role Article 232 had um, in uh, providing an incentive for Germany to, to show that they could not afford it, and then what was the outcome um, with, with regard to... Uh, to World War II. True. Thank you. Um, here, I think. Yeah. So wait for the. You paint Elżbieta Smolenska. You paint rather bleak uh, landscape of Europe after after the uh, uh, Paris Conference. But don't you think that for some countries, uh, 1918 is uh, rather uh, peace in, in Paris is rather good news for Eastern European countries, um, well, Eastern, Eastern Europe, sorry. Yeah. And uh, Poland emerged on the map, and you could argue that 1918 peace was, for this part of the world, much better than uh, conditions of peace after 1945. Right, so, the, so that some, just in case people at the back didn't hear that for some countries, particularly in Eastern Europe, it was actually better in 1918 than the 1945 uh, peace agreement. There was one here. Then we'll move further back for the next round. Thank you for your <clears throat> beyond wonderful lecture. And again, who are you, I'm Lee from the IGA Institute of Global Affairs. And um, yes, you give us a very clear picture of 1919. And uh, yes, it, it almost... It, clear is a crisis. And as you said, that after crisis, many countries chose communist. Yet, for, uh, my question is that uh, from a historian point of view, how do you find the communist idea? Is that the case whenever the crisis comes, people will come to the communist? Thank communist. You. Okay. Communist. Yep. So, should we just take those? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, the issue on reparations was, was a tricky one. And um, I think the Germans didn't want to pay. The other defeated nations couldn't pay. They, you know, Austria was left a little scrap, and, and Hungary was, you know, and Bulgaria would, and the, couldn't, and the Ottoman Empire was falling to pieces. What the Allies did was to appease their own publics, is they set a very high figure. They didn't set the figure in the treaty, which, again, I think rightly annoyed the Germans. 
the Allied argument was that they needed to determine what the damage was, which was actually quite a tricky question. Um, they had teams of engineers going through places like the north of France to try and estimate how much a, a ruined mine was worth and how much a, a torn-up railway bridge or a destroyed railway bridge was worth and how much a destroyed village was worth. And they also had to take into account Germany's capacity to pay. And so they set up three commissions which reported a year after the peace conference ended, one to set the figure to be paid, one to determine how much Germany could pay, and one to deal with how you actually transfer the, the funds over, which was a huge problem and, and a big economic and financial problem. The figure was large, very large, partly because the British suddenly realized if we're doing war, Woodrow Wilson had said no indemnities, no fines, which was previous practice. If you lost, you paid a fine or indemnity. And so the British said, yeah, they went along with this, and they suddenly realized, um, but we didn't have actual much, that much damage. I mean, Howell was, was shelled from the sea, and London had a few, there was some damage, but not like France or Belgium. And so the British said, wait a minute, we're not going to get anything out of this. And so they managed to get put into the reparations calculation was pensions for widows and orphans of servicemen who were killed in the war. So suddenly the British share gets much bigger, and there's some rather undignified haggling in Paris about who gets what. So the figure is, is, is very large. They know there is no way that they are going to collect it. So what they do is they divide it up. Well, the figure, when it's finally determined, is divided into basically three tranches. There is one which the Germans pay in gold and in kind, things like railway ties, and that's the smallest one. And the Germans have pretty much paid that, I think, by 1921. The second tranche, which is a bit bigger, still not the whole, it's a bit bigger, Germany would pay through bonds issued by the German government. Then um, that would be used to transfer funds. The third tranche, which was much the largest, would not fall due until the second tranche had been paid off. So Germany was never going to pay the second tranche off if it could possibly avoid it. What Keynes had suggested, and Lloyd George suggested as well, was, I think, a very creative idea. Part of the problem was that Britain, France had lent money to Russia. Russia had gone and Bolsheviks had repudiated all the debts, so France was owed a lot of money. They'd all spent a lot of money on the war, you can imagine. Britain had lent money to the French and the Italians and the Russians. The British had borrowed money, mainly the British had borrowed money from the United States. So the United States was pressuring mostly private funders was pressuring Britain to pay back its, its war debts. Britain was pressuring the French and the Italians to pay back their war debts. And the French and the Italians were pressuring Germany and the defeated nations to pay reparations. What Keynes said is, why don't we cancel the whole lot? Cancel all the inter-allied war debts, then we won't need the reparations. And we can use the funds to just get Europe going again, which is essentially what happened after 1945. Well, not quite. But the Americans wouldn't go for that. And so the British and the French found themselves in a, in a fiscal bind. And so that's why reparations became important. And, and I think it was also a moral thing. But it caused really bad feeling. And the Germans, in the end, never paid all that. Well, they paid a considerable amount, but not all that much. Um, as I say, the amount was revised down in 1924 and then again in 1929. And when Hitler came to power, he just canceled them. So the Germans stopped paying reparations in 1933, I think the British paid off the last of their war debts to the United States somewhere in the 1980s. They continued paying. So it, it was a problem. Um, and it, it could have been solved perhaps if the Americans had seen things differently, but they didn't. Um, you're right that for some Central European nations, what happened in the First World War was good news, particularly Poland. Because for Poland, 
its two main, oh, three main enemies were defeated. The three countries that had partitioned Poland at the end of the 19th, 18th century were defeated. Russia was defeated. It made a separate peace with Germany in, in 19, March 1918. Um, then, of course, Germany was defeated and Austria-Hungary was defeated. In but no, it was a very powerful, very powerful vision. And you can see why people were drawn to it. And they were drawn to it again at the end of the 1920s when capitalism seemed to be failing. So, yeah. Thank you. All right, we'll go with the next one. I think we should probably go up to the back a bit. So we'll go over there. Um, the person in the black, um, yeah. Hang on, wait for the microphone. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Jack. I'm a first year student at the LSE. Um, my question was we often talk about, for the First World War, um, a sense of um, uh, a backlash to globalization, right? And huge a backlash, backlash to globalization, for want of a yep, better yep. phrase. Um, and there's huge, there's kind of mass fears on mass about um, tech changes in technology, fears about industrial um, uh, changes, fears about this enormous displacement as a result of displacement of peoples. Um, following the First World War, how does that kind of play into the Paris Peace Conferences? Um, the same, where do the fears of um, mass dislocation of people, where do they go? Where does the problems that, that res are resulting from unemployment, where do they go? Um, just kind of interest to hear your take on that. Okay, social, yeah. <laughs> essentially. Um, yeah. Oh gosh, there's just too many people. We'll come here. Uh, yeah? Yeah. Oh. Hi. Oh, I said down here, yep. but okay. Oh, sorry. Uh, Sarah Moore, uh, wouldn't it have helped if. Uh, America had ratified the Treaty of Versailles since uh, really America, uh, Germany surrendered to America alone and I think we probably maybe could have tried the Kaiser and, and the war criminals mm -hmm. okay. We'll take you because I meant you that time then I'll come over here for the next round <laughs> so clearly there are a lot of people <laughs> Do you think that the peace... Sorry, again, who are you, please? Oh, Anna, from London. <laughs> and can you, can you speak up a little bit? Okay. I think I'm getting deaf. Um, do you think that the peacemakers could have done anything better, or do you think, like, due to the situation, they did the best thing? Sorry, could Sorry? they have do done anything better? Do you think that the peacemakers then... could, do anything, could have done anything better, or, like, due to the situation, they did the best thing? Yeah. Or okay. did they best they could in the situation? Yeah. Yeah. That, was that okay. roughly it? Okay. Um, yeah, on the globalization, um, the First World War really brought globalization to an end. And that tremendous um, expansion of trade didn't repeat itself after the First World War. I mean, a number of the newly emerging nations wanted to protect their own industries, and so they did have tariff barriers. And the United States was already putting up tariff barriers in the 1920s. It was going to get much more acute um, in, in the Great Depression. The movements of peoples around the world, which had been extraordinary before 1914, also began to slow down. Although there were um, forced migrations in parts of the world, there was, well, in fact, there was an exchange of population which was actually approved between Greece and Turkey um, at the end, at the end of, of their war. And so there were movements of peoples, but what you began to get was much more control over peoples. The passport became something that most countries introduced and it was already happening but it was became much much more important now having your papers became much more important i mean before the first world war you could travel through much of europe without any passport at all and that changed after the second world after the first world war 
But it was still an interconnected world. I mean, there was still a great deal of international trade and people were still moving, but it was certainly not as much as it ha had been before 19 1914. Um, the United States and the, and the Treaty of Versailles, if the United States had ratified the Treaty of Versailles, it would have become a member of the League of Nations because that was in the treaty. And the treaty, I tend to blame Woodrow Wilson um, which was unfair because he was sick, but he was extraordinarily stubborn. He went back to the United States to try and, and get the tre the treaty has to treaties have to go through the Senate, and the Senate was divided. Wilson had made, in my view, a huge mistake by making the peace um, partisan. He had said the United States had had elections in November 1918, and he said a vote for the Democrats is a vote for peace which enraged, rightly, the Republicans. He did not bring Republicans into the peace process. He had one nominal Republican in his delegation, but he'd been a Republican in 1880 or something. Um, and by contrast, Franklin Delano Roosevelt made the peace settlements in the Second World War and the founding of the UN and all those institutions bipartisan. He kept the Republicans on side the whole way. Wilson alienated them, and he wouldn't work with them. And so when he came back to the United States trying to get the Treaty 3, he went on a great speaking tour and, of course, in September 1919, collapsed with a massive stroke. Um, his mind was still okay, but what people have argued, he, he became virtually a prisoner in his bedroom and spoke through his wife and a couple of other close assistants. And he ordered, the, the treaty had gone through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and what the committee had done was attach what are called reservations to it. So they said, you know, we, we take this clause to mean such and such. And the reservations did undermine some of the aspects of the treaty. Lloyd George and Clemenceau said they could have lived with those reservations. They wanted the U.S. to ratify the treaty and join the League. And Wilson ordered his own Democrats to vote against the treaty with its reservations. And so the treaty was defeated, and the United States therefore didn't join the League, by a combination of hardline Republicans and some of Wilson's own Democrats. And so I think Wilson ensured the defeat of the treaty. Um, and I think he would have done it even if he hadn't been sick. Um, the best, did they do the best they could? In, I think they did, they did not a bad job in the circumstances. I, as I say, I think the conditions for peace weren't that good. But they also made some dreadful mistakes. Um, they carved up the Middle East without the slightest concern for any of the people who lived there. I mean, they, they, Lord George and, and Clemenceau were in some ways men of the 20th century, but they were in some ways 19th century imperialists, and they thought people who lived outside Europe were just basically inferior and didn't have a will of their own and weren't ready to rule themselves. And so I think, you know, the world in the Middle East is still paying the penalty of the carve-up of the Middle East, which was done both in Paris but then later on um, at a, at a couple of conferences afterwards, and that was done without much concern or any concern for the people who lived there. And the countries that created weren't necessarily um, going to be all that stable. So, they, no, what they did wasn't entirely good, but I think my argument always is, um, given what they were dealing with, how much better could they have done it? And I, I, I guess the question I ended with, when we look back at the past and say, you made a mess of it, we need to ask ourselves, okay, so what would, what would we have done differently? And since the United States wasn't prepared to cancel its debts, I think it would have been difficult, very difficult for the French to say we don't want reparations. I mean, it was a matter of, you know, it was a deeply held belief among the French electorate that they wanted reparations. And so politically, very, very difficult for them to say this. Um, I think the British Lloyd George did try and get a rather complicated deal done at Rapallo and the French cut 
muck that up. I mean, I think there really was a problem of the Allies falling to pieces. So yes, they certainly could have done better. Um, did they? Did they try? I think they did. I mean, I don't. Th I think the Keynes picture is completely unfair. I think they were not evil, half apes, half whatever's um, boobies. Anyway, <laughs> so. Okay, gosh, it's on far too many. Um, there, uh, the, yeah, yeah. Hi, my name is Adrian. I'm a master's student at LSE. Uh, just to touch on what you just said, uh, Professor McMillan, when uh, the end of World War I is analyzed, one frequently looks at the consequences on Germany and Austria-Hungary. Uh, however, I wanted to maybe ask you for your take and maybe in more depth on uh, the partitioning of the Ottoman Empire with the Treaty of Sevres and its consequences for geopolitics in the Middle East in the short term, but even up to today in the long term. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, now there's somebody just behind you. And this is not a, a very sort of popular thing to say, especially in the Middle East. I do think there's a tendency in the Middle East to blame all its present troubles on those settlements 100 years ago. And I think, yes, those settlements did carve up the Middle East, not entirely irrationally, but certainly with, with some real problems. But I think a number of the problems in, in countries such as Iraq and Syria are not necessarily to do with those settlements. They're to do with a failure to establish a functioning polity and functioning civic organizations. Um, so I think there, there are a number of reasons to, for the current situation in the Middle East. Um, the war guilt clause, the lawyers felt they had to do it. And Lloyd George, who had trained as a solicitor, said, I don't believe we can ask people for reparations unless we have a legal base for doing it. Um, and I don't think anyone foresaw at the time what trouble it would, would create in Germany. I, as, I, as I remember, the other treaties with Bulgaria, Austria, Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire contained similar clauses, and none of those countries ever made a fuss about them. I mean, I think it was a deliberate decision on the part of the German government, and it was a, something the German public could rally around, especially as they came to think they hadn't either started the war or lost it. And so everything that went wrong in Germany was blamed on reparations. A, a British journalist was there, in the very interesting woman in the 1920s, and she met these old sisters who lived in Weimar, and they said, you know, before the war we could send our laundry out once a week, and now we can only afford to send it out every two, week, two weeks. It's all the fault of reparations. You know, it became a sort of, you know, handy scapegoat. Um, it's a bit like, you know blaming, I don't know, whatever for something. I was going to say Brussels, but I won't. Um, <laughs> as far as the Russian, the Russian question is a really interesting one. Um, the, the Allies had an agreement that they wouldn't make a separate peace. Russia had a revolution, and then a second revolution, and in November 1917, Lenin and the Bolsheviks took power, and Lenin was determined to get Russia out of the war at whatever cost, and so he did a separate treaty with Germany and Austria-Hungary at the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which Russia suffered enormously. It handed over most of its gold. It lost huge amounts of territory. Ukraine was created as a sort of satellite of Austria-Hungary. It's, it's one of the reasons, actually, um, when the Allies came to look at the terms they were going to impose on Germany, they said, well, look what Germany did to Russia. And you could argue those terms were much more savage than, than anything the Allies imposed on Germany. That's neither here nor there. And so the Russians were not invited to the peace conference because they had made a separate peace. They'd broken the deal. There was then some talk of trying to get a combined Russian delegation of both the Bolsheviks and the white Russians who were represented in Paris, the non-Bolshevik Russians. There was a civil war going on in Russia. And the, there was to be a meeting at the little island of Istanbul called Prinkipo, 
where both the Bolsheviks and, and the white Russians would meet. Well, the white Russians refused to meet the Bolsheviks, and the Bolsheviks refused to meet the white Russians. The white Russians said the Bolsheviks have murdered my family, which they probably had. And the Bolsheviks said, well, you know, capitalism is about to collapse anyway. Why would we bother to talk to them? And so the Allies were not prepared to talk just to the white Russians. The Bolsheviks didn't want to talk to them, and so that, that simply didn't happen. The Russians were not represent, represented at the peace conference. Uh, right, we've probably got time for one more round. This is going to be... Sorry, can you please wait till you're called upon? Um, I will take you, but can you please wait for a, a microphone? <laughs> And if people could now keep the, as you say, we are short of time, so keep them um, brief. Sorry to be rude. I am a fellow Canadian, and I shouldn't be rude, but... Um, Canadians are never rude. You can't be a Canadian. Okay. Well, I, I was born here in London, so that perhaps oh, well. explains yeah. it. Okay. Um, my name is Brian Claxton, and my field is uh, international history. I'm surprised you haven't been challenged yet on, I think, was the most uh, interesting, if not contentious, point that you made. Uh, to do with the relationship between, perhaps I'm expanding the point, but democracy and uh, mm -hmm. democracy and peace. Um, the First World War was to be the war to make the world safe for democracy. You hinted that democracy was not safe for the peace process. My uh, argument would be that considering how close the world came to averting war in 1914, if there had been full suffrage in 1914 in the world, perhaps democracy would have averted the war and the idea, the, the question of whether democracy impeded peace would be irrelevant and academic. Okay, okay. okay thank you. Um, go there. Yeah. It's coming. I'm going to go over this. Thank you very much. What brilliant talk. You mentioned a f figure. I think you might be talking Walter Rathenau. I always had a great admiration of this man. He was um, in charge of war production in Imperial Germany, a similar position held by Albert Speer in the Second World War. And when you referred to the assassinator, I think you might be referring to him. It was a great European tragedy. Mm -hmm. But um, when he was assassinated, the government then I mean, organized meetings to commemorate his assassination. And today, I think he's valued... As a, uh, in the federal public. Could you just say a little bit more about his significance? Walter Rata now. Are you okay? <laughs> okay. Um, we'll come here. <coughs> Hi, I'm Paul. I'm Canadian, and I'm never rude. <laughs> um, for us, looking back 100 years, the... the, the script of the war seems like a settled thing, but surely to the Allies at the time, they must have been thinking, you know, Germany could be handing us a pen and a, a script to write. So did, they, did the Allies have it in mind of what terms would likely have been imposed on them had they lost the war? Hmm. Well, I can certainly talk about that. Um, on the first question, our democracies, I, I think you're, you're, you're suggesting democracies tend to be peaceful, and if everyone had a vote, they would vote for peace. Germany had full male suffrage before the First World War, and the German Reichstag supported the war, voted for war credits. Um, you know, there were, there were people out in the streets cheering. 
So I don't think that democracies are always peaceful. I think democracies can be swayed by emotions, voters can be swayed by emotions, and I think the war, at least for the first three years in Germany, was, was widely popular. It was only towards the end in 1918, I think, 1718, that the cracks began to appear. So I don't think, I, mean, I don't share your confidence that if everyone could vote, we'd all be naturally peaceful. It, it strikes me as a bit the same argument if only women ran the world. Um, it would be better. And my answer to that is Indira Gandhi, um, Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher <laughs> Catherine the Great. Um, anyway, but, but you, know, it's, you know, it's an interesting point. And, and I know there is a democratic peace theory that the more countries become democratic, the less likely we are to fight. Um, that's, I think it's always to be hoped for, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure that even democracies don't have these gusts of emotion and, and irrationality. Um, Walter Rathenau, well, I'm not a German historian, but he was an extremely interesting man, um, very cultivated, wrote a wonderful series of letters, diary, um, which I've read. He was a great industrialist, great advisor to the German government, but fatally for some on the right, he was a Jew. And you do begin to get, although Germany and Germany Jews were probably the best integrated of any Jewish community in Europe before the First World War, in the aftermath of defeat, you begin to get a very nasty strain of anti-Semitism coming out, and Rathenau, I think, was, was going to fall victim to that. Um, and there was more, going to be more than a set, you know, suggestions that if you're Jewish, you can't be a true German. And that, I think, became very much the sort of leitmotif of, of a number of the right-wing nationalist parties, particularly, of course, the Nazis in the 1920s. Um, what sort of peace would Germany have imposed on the Allies? Well, the Allies looked at the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, the one with Russia, and thought that says something. And there were, there was something called the September Program. There were, there were a number of public statements made by the Foreign Ministry and made by various German academics. Um, and there were also some less public statements. But it looks like, and I think the Allies had a sense of this, it looks like Germany, if it had won, would have turned Belgium into a dependency or possibly annexed um, much of Belgium, particularly the coast, would have um, taken the north French ports as well, would have turned much of Central Europe into a German Middle Europa. I mean, that was something that a number of people were talking about, making um, the center of Europe. I mean, Austria-Hungary, by the time of the First World War, was more and more dependent on Germany. And so there were those in Germany who said, you know, we can have um, a sort of semi-official empire in the center of Europe, an economic empire in which we'll control what goes on in the center of Europe. And certainly there were already those in Germany looking to Ukraine, the great breadbasket and with, with its resources in, in coal and its industrial base. Um, a number of Germans saying this is the natural place for Germany to expand. And so I think that any terms imposed by Germany and its allies, in my view, would have been pretty harsh and would have left a continent dominated by Germany. Um, I think it's, it's highly likely that would have happened. And, and France, if it had been defeated, would have become... Um, in some ways, as a satellite of Germany's. I mean, if you look at what Germany did to France after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, France had to pay a very large amount of money. It's been estimated, and these things are always very tricky because you have to try and convert um, funds from currencies from one period to another, but it's been estimated that France actually paid more to Germany after 1871 than Germany ever paid in reparations after 1919. And the French also had to pay the costs of the German occupation until they had paid off their fine. Um, and after that, 
Bismarck, certainly, until he was removed from office at the beginning of the 1990s, kept France in isolation, kept it diplomatically isolated. It had no allies, and it had very little influence in Europe. And so I think, um, looking at what happened in 1871, looking at what happened at Brest-Litovsk, looking at what was being said in German circles, and certainly in the Foreign Office and around the government um, during the First World War, I think German peace terms would have been quite harsh. And, and would have left a very powerful Germany in the center of Europe, which is one of the reasons the British came into the war in the first place. Um, you know, the British have always preferred to have a balance in Europe, and that's a long-standing policy. Um, I think, unfortunately, and I'm sorry for those who I wasn't able to get to, that we are now out of time. I'm sure you'll all agree that we've had an extraordinarily rich um, evening discussion. I thank all of you for your questions. Thank you. And if you could please um, thank...